Hello to all the militant millennials out there. Wow. What does one say after being gone for five years, especially after everything that's happened within these five years specifically? I guess one would start by saying, I hope you've been doing well, as well as you can. I've been doing the best I possibly can with what I have. I wish we could have reconnected on a more positive occasion, but unfortunately, that just isn't the case. When I first had the idea to start this podcast, I knew exactly what I wanted it to feel like. I knew exactly what I wanted it to sound like. I even told myself that I'd only do 100 episodes on topics that I already had written down, because honestly, after that, what else could be said? Being innately camera shy, I'd have to go all in with another angle to captivate an audience. Outside of vision, audio is my favorite sense. So I always had this lingering fantasy of running my own radio show with a focus on disseminating lesser known information about the history of black people and how we got to this point in the present. So that's what I aim to create. But this time, it won't sound like a radio show, so you'll have to forgive me. There's no intro music, no outro music, no background music during the conversation. This will be a report. So buckle up and sit tight, because this one is going to be dense, but necessary. It's going to be a lot of dates, a lot of names, a lot of quotes and statements, but it's all relevant, I promise. At the end of this, you'll know everything that we've learned over the past two and a half years in a matter of minutes. Before we begin, I must acknowledge everyone that's gotten me to this point of wanting to reboot this podcast. My friends who have kept me passionate, my family who have helped me refine my voice, and my comrades that have inspired me over the course of this timeline. I sincerely thank all of you for not only allowing me a space to express myself, but for always encouraging me to lend my voice and perspective in a public setting. It cannot be overstated how much of my confidence and bravery is derived from the confidence and bravery of you all. Of course, I have to thank Atlanta. God, how much I love you. You're beautiful, you're charming, you're inviting, you're home. I endure everything about you and can't get enough of you. You aren't perfect and you never will be, but you're constantly improving and growing. The foods, the museums, the schools, the events, and the green spaces, I indulge in it all. Every neighborhood has its own vibe and purpose, From Bankhead to Buckhead, I never feel out of place. You've spoiled me, and I always have to compare you to wherever I go. Atlanta, or better, is a phrase I've latched onto. You're such a marvel that I want to show you off to everyone. I want them to see you through my eyes as I do. Even though we say you're full, even if not all of your visitors like you, I still take it as a win because I've traveled far and wide to cities much bigger and much smaller, and I'm always dumbfounded when people say they've never been. I want everyone to see the place that we've built here, but I need you to understand it is not your buildings that make you a city or define your culture. It is, always has been, and always will be the people. Without them, we have nothing else, and therefore, they must be given the respect that they rightfully earn. There is nothing written in the fundamental tenets of nature that says Atlanta has to exist. Therefore, it is a privilege that it does and should be cherished as such. I have yet to find another city in this country that has the ability to balance the weight of being the cultural, economic, and political center of a region, let alone a state. In California, the nation's most populous state, Los Angeles is by far and away the economic center. Sacramento is the political center, and there will be a hot debate on who's the real cultural center, depending on who you ask. So for us to be what we are and have what we have in the deep south of all places, We owe it to ourselves to be the best that we can be for 
and to each other because the rest of the nation, to some degree, the world will be watching. For those who haven't been in the loop, we have to talk about what's been happening in Atlanta over the past couple of years in regards to arguably the nation's most controversial development project, officially referred to by its proponents as the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, but dubbed by us as Cop City, before it even gained traction due to the fact that it was literally pitched as a training ground built around a scale model of the city of Atlanta for police to attain specialized tactics dealing with operating within an urban setting, i.e. urban warfare. The mock buildings included a school, a bank, residential high-rises, nightclub, gas station, and whatever else they could think of that makes a city a city. The facility itself was touted to have the latest and greatest in all the amenities that makes cops tingle in their toes, a driving course, a helipad, shooting range, explosives range, burn building, stables and kennels for their horses and dogs, even classrooms, recreation rooms, and event spaces for them to hang out when they weren't being trained. Of course, all of this would be built using modern design practices, aesthetics, and materials. Ergo, it wouldn't be cheap. Initial reports allege that the Atlanta Police Foundation started doing research around a bespoke training facility as early as 2015. Of course, there was no pushback yet. Nobody outside of that organization was aware of such a project. But in all fairness, this was during Mayor Kasim Reed's second term as mayor, and frankly, that administration had enough scandals and accusations of corruption to keep us occupied as is. What is the Atlanta Police Foundation? Founded in 2003, the APF is a nonprofit organization whose sole purpose is to provide financial support to the Atlanta Police Department and its officers. This support includes paying for new equipment, training, and initiatives that weren't originally in the city budget, as well as subsidizing housing for their officers, i.e. contributing to gentrifying neighborhoods at night after over-policing neighborhoods during the day. Truly a nasty state of affairs. Socialism for a select few, brutal capitalism for the rest of us. Operation Shield, the mesh network of surveillance cameras all around the city, making it the most surveilled city in the country, but doesn't prevent an ounce of crime. That was the brainchild of APF's CEO. The APF is accountable solely to their own board of directors, which includes Delta Airlines, Waffle House, The Home Depot, Georgia Pacific, Equifax, Carter Real Estate, Accenture, Wells Fargo, and UPS. The president and CEO of the APF is Dave Wilkinson, who joined the foundation in 2005 after retiring from being a Secret Service agent for 22 years. Dave is the highest paid police foundation executive in the nation, earning nearly $500,000 per year in base salary and other benefits. This is well above the $250,000 the mayor of Atlanta is paid. Dave lives in Southern Fayette County, a full hour outside the city. That is an outside agitator. The APF is the largest police union in the country in terms of revenue, employees, and private sector donors. Larger than New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, and Phoenix. Just for perspective, the largest police department in the nation is far and away the NYPD Blue with a budget that is regularly in the billions with a capital B. We didn't know then what we know now. But hindsight is 2020. Fast forward to 2020, 
while the entire country is grappling with an unprecedented pandemic and shelter-in-place orders, George Floyd is murdered on camera in broad daylight by a gang of Minneapolis police officers on May 25th. Protests erupt nationwide, rightfully so. People are exhausted and furious. Atlanta is no exception. Demonstrations are going on for days. A few shattered windows around the CNN Center and a bombed-out police cruiser, but nobody was murdered. Protests continued throughout the week for days on end. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is rattled, issues a curfew, and gets Governor Brian Kemp to call in extra Georgia State Patrol officers with the National Guard on standby. Saturday, May 30th, 2020, is another night of protests. People stay out past curfew, so Mayor Bottoms lets APD loose on the streets. Two AUC students, Messiah Young of Morehouse and Tania Pilgrim of Spelman, are trying to go home. They get caught up in the curfew crackdown by the police. A gang of officers surround their car so they can't move or otherwise risk hitting a cop with their car and probably being shot to death in retaliation. So what does APD do? They tell them that they're breaking curfew and blocking the street. They then proceed to break the windows of the car, tase both of them while still seated in the car, and then yank them out of their seats onto the pavement while they're suffering from a taser shot, decrying that they weren't complying with lawful orders. Yet again, this is all on camera. It was airing live on CNN. Adding insult to injury, APD still charged both of them. Mayor Bottoms and then Police Chief Erica Shields saw the video and claimed to have been disgusted by what they saw. So they fired two out of five officers involved the following day, with the other three being assigned to desk duty. Chief Shields issued an apology to both Messiah and Tania, even going on to say, quote, this is not what we are about, end quote, which would unfortunately prove to be horrendously untrue. Not even two weeks later, on June 12, 2020, APD responded to a call about a man passed out in the parking lot of a Wendy's, potentially drunk. That man was Rayshard Brooks. The two officers end up killing Rayshard by shooting him twice in the back as he ran away from them. Both officers were fired. Both were initially charged, but the lead prosecutor of the case, Peter Scandalakis, who was appointed by Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr, decided to drop the charges based on the argument that because Rayshard disarmed one of the cops of his taser after they assaulted him simply for being drunk, Rayshard was now capable of inflicting lethal force upon the officers. Therefore, they were justified in shooting him, even as he fled from them. The entire interaction from arriving on the scene, to speaking with Rayshard, to the assault, to the flee, to the murder was all on camera, both body cams on the officers and surveillance cams from the area. So what I'm hearing is that according to the official prosecution office of the attorney general, tasers are considered lethal. Therefore, anytime an officer pulls a taser on us, we are justified in shooting them dead. Bring a gun to a taser fight. It's an even sicker twist of fate that Axon Technologies, the manufacturer of tasers, is a corporate backer of the Atlanta Police Foundation and a cop city supporter. Both of the officers even sued the city to rehire them with back pay after Chief Shields admitted that they violated department policy and their oaths of office. They were both reinstated with back pay, and APD stated that both officers will be retrained and recertified while on administrative duty. There is no reforming this. They acted in a way that reflected the training that they had already been provided. This same training is costing us a lot of money. In November 2022, the same city council that is ramming Cop City down our throats voted unanimously to award Rayshard's family a $1 million settlement in a wrongful death suit brought by his widow, Tamika Miller. They had four kids together, three daughters and one son, 
ranging in ages from 1 to 13 at the time of his murder. These funds don't come out of the police budget or their pension funds. It comes out of our general fund. So the money we pay to clean up the messes of poorly trained police is money that we can't spend on something else. They still get to keep their equipment, cars, jobs, and benefits, learning nothing in the process and are therefore doomed to repeat it. Not even 24 hours after Rayshard was murdered, Chief Shields quit the force. Guess she had too weak of a stomach to see the department that she led and trained being exposed on national television week in and week out. But did she retire and ride off into the sunset? No. She went to Louisville, Kentucky to head up their Metro Police Department. This is what I'm saying about it's all connected. When black people in Atlanta have a problem, black people have a problem nationally. Upon the resignation of Erica Shields, Mayor Bottoms coerced retired assistant chief Rodney Bryant to come back and be appointed as interim chief. Chief Bryant basically admits that he was bullied into rehiring the two aforementioned officers that murdered Rayshard Brooks due to a large swath of his subordinates calling out sick and what they labeled a blue flu in protests that their co-workers were fired for not only breaking department policy, but for murdering another person. These are the morally repugnant characters we have on our public payroll. Chief Bryant promptly announced that his appointment would be temporary as he planned to re-retire to make way for Darren Shirebaum to become the new police chief. Spoiler alert, Shirebaum is the current chief of APD and has been present for every scandal of policing leading up to the final cop city vote. Again, it's all connected. The rest of 2020 is an absolute shit show. I don't need to remind y'all we were all there. Unfortunately, there's no rest for the weary. Now, Georgia is called upon to save the rest of the country during election season. We answered the call emphatically. We flipped the state blue for Joe Biden's White House and the nation's Senate when we sent both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock to Congress after we took both of their races to at least one runoff. Warnock's seat had two, again, in the midst of a pandemic. We finally turn the calendar and make it into 2021. We attempt to pick up the pieces from the year before and move forward as a city. Come April 1st, 2021, Mayor Bottoms officially proposes the project during a press conference. The initial plans call for it to sit on 150 acres at the old Atlanta prison farm, stating that the facility would, quote, raise morale and attract new officers, end quote, not crime being a main driving factor. In fact, Mayor Bottoms balked at the idea, pushing back that the recent spike in violent crime was due to economic stresses of the coronavirus pandemic, which was correct. The homicide rate jumped 58% in 2020, then fell just as sharply back to the original baseline in 2022, proving that it was an unprecedented circumstance in response to unprecedented times. This also marks the first time that the president of the Atlanta Police Foundation, Dave Wilkinson, publicly supported the center alongside the city of Atlanta in any official capacity. Neither Wilkinson nor Mayor Bottoms would say what the expected price tag of a, quote, beacon of 21st century policing center, end quote, would cost. They just assured us that a majority of the funds would come from the APF via a public-private partnership. The first entrance of corporations into the fray came from the Atlanta Committee for Progress, with a statement from its chair, Alex Taylor, stating that, quote, these actions help our city move faster in fighting crime while also ensuring our police officers 
have the additional training and skills required to serve and respond appropriately to the needs of all Atlantans, end quote. So who is Alex Taylor? He's the president and CEO of Cox Enterprises, a family-owned business conglomerate that owns media outlets such as Axios, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and WSB-TV, all of which have been actively reporting on the Cop City storyline, only recently acknowledging their vested interest in the project being built. Alex Taylor and Cox dropped the first and largest check towards APF stated $60 million fund, leading the fundraising efforts with a whopping $10 million. So begins the weaponization of capital from these partnerships against the people. For many people, this was the jumping off point of Cop City. The irony that it was April Fool's Day wasn't lost on any of us. The city at large hoped it was just a cruel prank, not realizing that this was the beginning of the APF attempting to make fools out of us by using our own city government as their stage prop. September 8th, 2021, Atlanta City Council voted in favor of the construction proposal to lease 350 acres of city-owned land to the APF, with 85 acres for the physical building while the remaining 265 acres would be devoted to publicly accessible spaces. This came after months of delays and debates on the specifics of the plan, mainly questions around the official footprint of the facility and the makeup of the funding. When the proposal was first introduced, city council said that the city will contribute $30 million through a $1 million per year lease or a general obligation bond to fund the project, but not both. Before the vote came down, city council fielded over a thousand statements from constituents during the public comment section. This lasted over 17 hours, with an overwhelming majority of speakers being against the project. This pushed the council meeting from originally voting on Tuesday night at 10 p.m. into Wednesday morning so they could hear everyone's claim. There were multiple failed attempts by multiple counselors to send the proposal back to committee for further review, push the start of the lease date back, and even do more environmental studies on what a fix may fall upon the forest and its water supply. After all of that, the council voted 10 to 4 in favor. Councilors Michael Julian Bond of Post 1 at large, Matt Westmoreland of Post 2 at large, Andrea Boone of District 10, Andre Dickens of Post 3 at large, Dustin Hillis of District 9, Marcy Collier-Overstreet of District 11, Howard Shook of District 7, Joyce Shepard of District 12, J.P. Madzikite of District 8 and Cleta Winslow of District 4 voted in favor. Councilors Natalyn Archibald of District 5, Antonio Brown of District 3, Jennifer Ide of District 6, and Carla Smith of District 1 voted against it. Amir Faroki of District 2 was not present and therefore did not vote. It didn't take long before people started to notice a pattern. City Council would harp on the importance of being an active participant in the democratic process, then they would solicit public comment. The public comment would be vehemently opposed to the project. The information the council would return to us would be shaky at best, outright wrong at worst, or they would admit to not having all of the details in front of them. They would then proceed to vote in favor anyways, claiming that just because the majority of people that spoke against the project were present, they know what's best for the city as a whole and their supporters were just too shy, timid, or busy to publicly voice their support. Naturally, people got fed up. Protests and demonstrations popped up across both the city and the metro area at large, in front of staff members' houses, their day jobs outside of city council, and wherever else their voices could be heard. In November 2021, Atlanta went to the polls to vote for a new mayor and city council. 
Mayor Bottoms chose not to run for re-election, leaving the mayor's office wide open. This pulled Councilor Andre Dickens opposed three at-large and City Council President Felicia Moore to vacate their respective seats, with Andre Dickens being elected as the 61st mayor of Atlanta. This allowed two-time former CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center and Center for Civil and Human Rights, Doug Shipman, to become the new council president after a runoff against former District 5 Councilor Madeline Archibong, who vacated her seat for this race by a margin of 7,336 votes. Keisha Sean Waits ended up winning the newly vacated post three at large seat after a runoff by a margin of 1,748 votes. A further five city council seats went to a runoff, districts 1, 3, 4, 5, and 12. Jason Winston won District 1 by a margin of 286 votes. Byron Amos won District 2 by a margin of 45 votes. Jason Dozier won District 4 by a margin of 1,036 votes. Liliana Bakhtiari won District 5 by a margin of 1,035 votes. Antonio Lewis won District 12 by a margin of 877 votes. The following city council seats were also up for re-election, but were won outright with no need for a runoff. Districts 2, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, as well as posts 1 and 2 at large. Councilor Mir Faroki of District 2 ran unopposed. Councilor Alex Wan of District 6 regained the seat he last held in 2017 by a margin of 6,672 votes after he first vacated the seat to run for council president in the same year and after Jennifer Ide decided not to run for re-election in 2021. Councilor Howard Shook of District 7 ran unopposed. Councilor Mary Norwood of District 8 ran unopposed after she vacated the same seat to run for mayor against Keisha Lance Bottoms in 2017 and got beat out by a margin of 832 votes. Councilor Dustin Hillis of District 9 won re-election by a margin of 2,482 votes. Councilor Andrea Boone won re-election by a margin of 5,180 votes. Councilor Marcy Collier-Overstreet of District 11 won re-election by a margin of 4,282 votes. Councilor Michael Julian Bond of Post 1 at Large has been on City Council for almost 15 years at this point, won re-election by a margin of 37,184 votes. Matt Westmoreland of Post 2 at Large won re-election by a margin of 25,386 votes. Allowing anyone to run unopposed at a local level is absolutely inexcusable especially given the circumstances of six of the incumbent councillors voting yes to approve the cop city proposal after blowing us off at every turn. Unacceptable. We should all be embarrassed. I believe that it's important to know the backstory of the elections of these seats, as well as the margins of victory, so you can see the overall picture and start thinking about how to do things differently moving forward. Flip the seats you can flip, keep the ones you can keep. Never let anyone run unopposed because then they might start behaving as if they're beyond reproach. January 2022. Protesting officially begins at the Cobb City site off of Key Road in unincorporated DeKalb County. People much braver than I put their bodies on the line to occupy the forest, lovingly referred to as Wilani from the indigenous Muscogee people who first called it home before being violently forced off their land during the Trail of Tears. After the land was literally stolen from the Muscogee, it became property of the federal government, who then sold it to the city of Atlanta a year after the Civil War ended. This led to the land becoming a state-sponsored plantation by another name, Prison Farm. Those who were incarcerated would farm the land and raise cattle, often feeding the populations of other carceral institutions. 
This lasted up until the 1990s when the facility was abandoned as a prison. To this day, there hasn't been any clear answer as to why. Maybe the horrors that the land had been used to perpetuate finally caught up with the state. Who knows? These horrors include unmarked graves of deceased Zoo Atlanta animals as well as convict laborers. Truly cursed land. Not to mention, the APD would still use the land for outdoor shooting and explosives tests, even though there was no permanent standing structure for them. Despite all of this, nature has a way of forgiving all of our transgressions and healing. Due to the fact that this forest is considered one of the four lungs of Atlanta, it was proposed in 2017 to turn the South River Forest into a 3,500-acre green space that would stretch from Southside Park on Jonesboro Road eastward across city limits at Moreland Ave into unincorporated DeKalb County to include the old prison farm and Entrenchment Creek Park, connecting as far north as Custer Avenue. All of this would have been inside the perimeter and larger than Cloudland Canyon State Park. Knowing that a single acre is 44,000 square feet, it cannot be understated how massive and beautiful this land could have been for the use of everyone. This was all proposed by Ryan Gravel, the visionary architect that gifted us the Beltline, which has become a national model of urban revitalization in its own right. This is what they stole from us. So forest defenders took that personally and decided to reclaim the stolen land and repurpose it for more altruistic activities. They lived in the forest full time, making canopy bridges, collecting water, and feeding anyone that came by to what they called the living room. They made a live-in settlement with community aid. People were out there doing yoga, meditating, making arts and crafts, playing games, giving guided tours of the forest, and even teaching people's kids how to garden and take care of trees. May 2022, seven forest defenders were arrested for allegedly throwing Molotov cocktails at APD after cops came to forcefully remove them from the land. Again, not a single cop has been injured, let alone killed. This started the outside agitator narrative that the media in support of Cop City began to run nonstop. We should all be honored and humbled that people from across the country and globe would willingly put their freedom and lives on the line to help us in our struggle. Again, people much braver than most. Come November 2022, again, Georgia is called upon to save the nation, swearing that President Biden's progressive campaign agenda will be reduced to ash if he loses control of the Senate majority that we just delivered to him two years ago. Yet again, we answered that call. Back-to-back election cycles with historic donations and voter turnout. It can be argued that we saved the rest of the nation at the expense of ourselves because Democrats running for crucial statewide offices got absolutely stomped. Stacey Abrams lost the governorship to Governor Brian Kemp by a wider margin the second time than she did the first time. 300,000 plus votes. Attorney General Chris Carr beat his opponent, Jen Jordan, by 200,000 plus votes for a second term. The re-election of both of these men is directly related to the escalation of violence that is to come on this timeline. I'd like to make a point that most black people, especially younger ones, aren't necessarily pro-Democrat or anti-Republican, but that's a discussion for another time. December 2022, Five forest defenders are arrested on domestic terrorism charges for allegedly throwing rocks at police during yet another raid on land that they have abandoned and have allowed to be reclaimed by nature. Now that they want to redevelop it yet again into a center of oppression, they want to bully people and label them domestic terrorists. Again, this is the umpteenth clash that forest defenders have had with police and not a single officer has been tased, burned, shot, 
or killed. Then the flashpoint moment, January 18th, 2023. The force was raided that morning by a Frankenstein unit of APD, DeKalb County and GBI officers tasked with clearing the forest. They started to physically destroy any signs of habitat that they came across, food, water supply, clothes, and tents. When they came across tents that were occupied, they would shoot pepper balls into the tents, then announce themselves after already assaulting people. They reached Manuel Tortuguita Tehran's tent and shot pepper balls into it. When Tort didn't come out, they forced their way in. This is when they claim Tort shot a state trooper. We'll never know because state troopers are conveniently exempt from having to wear body cams, which is a consciously deliberate choice due to the fact that the manufacturer of GSP's standard issue taser, Axon Technologies, also manufactures body cams. The very same body cams that a plethora of departments around the metro area use as standard issue, even when serving alongside state troopers. We were able to learn from the GBI autopsy that state troopers proceeded to shoot into Tort's tent at point-blank range with both pistols and shotguns. We also learned from the independent autopsy performed by Dr. Chris Sperry that Tort was killed on the scene after being shot a minimum of 57 times while sitting cross-legged with both of their hands raised, palms facing inward. Whether Tort actually shot a cop or not, we'll never know at this point. But what we do know is that officers on the scene at the same time from APD did have body cameras and are on film saying, damn, he fucked his own guy up, suggesting to us what we already believe to be true. The cops shot each other because in their hail of gunfire, these dumbasses have no aim or self-control. They are a danger to not only us, but to themselves and each other. According to scholars the world over, this marked the first murder of an environmental activist by U.S. authorities, forever staining our history with further bloodshed on land that is seen in egregious amount. As far as I'm concerned, this was the end of any further negotiations, debates, compromises, or peaceful demonstrations. Somebody's child is now dead. They are never coming back. All because the police didn't like their method of protesting. That, by definition, is terrorism. February 17th, 2023, Fulton County Judge Thomas Cox denied a temporary restraining order to halt construction at the site. The suit was brought forth by the South River Watershed Alliance on concerns that the site would pollute Entrenchment Creek Park by dumping more silt into the waterway than it could handle. Judge Cox disagreed, stating that this claim was purely speculative and that the facility would serve a greater purpose to the APD and AFD going on to state that the plaintiffs wouldn't suffer any irreparable harm if the facility was built. Not to mention that the developers on the site were already in the habit of ignoring any orders to halt construction while the land use permit that was granted to them by DeKalb County was being properly followed. Construction of the site also began before the Atlanta City Council approved any funding for the project. The same funds that the APF swore on a stack of Bibles was crucial to move the project forward. Why would anybody start work on a project if they weren't sure that they already had their financing lined up ahead of time? March 4th through the 11th, 2023 is a fifth week of action and a sweeping bid to defend the forest in the midst of fever pitch tensions. It included a plethora of events, including the usual community aid offered in the living room that I mentioned earlier, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, and a host of demonstrations, protests, and rallies. 
being kicked off with a free music festival in the forest at the start of the first weekend. During the festival, before it got dark, there was a group of people that split off from the festival and went to the construction site about two miles away where they disabled some construction equipment, raided a trailer office, and took the locks off of gates trying to block the land. Apparently, there were cameras around the site and that triggered a police response. When the cops showed up, they couldn't identify the splinter group, so they decided to raid the festival. By this time, it was dark, so there was no hope of differentiating who was who. In their typical fashion, state troopers escalated the situation when on scene. They are on film yet again yelling at people in the forest that, quote, if you don't come out, you're going to get shot, end quote. They then proceeded to arrest 34 people on suspicion of domestic terrorism charges, including a civil rights lawyer who was sent by the Sutherland Poverty Law Center to act as a legal observer, whose entire purpose is to ensure that people's rights are not being infringed, even during the execution of duty. The police cite people having mud on the bottom of their shoes as sufficient evidence of terrorism charges. A quick reminder of the conditions of a forest in the middle of spring, it rains. Muddy shoes are par for the course. Not letting a tragedy go to waste, Governor Kemp released a statement calling the defenders domestic terrorists and that violent demonstrations are outrageous and that destruction of property will not be tolerated. He also calls upon prosecutors to crack down on anyone involved in the movement, surely a thinly veiled order to crush dissent and place trumped up charges on anyone in opposition to him or his officers. This is coming from the sole supervisor of the police force that murdered Tortuguita and has yet to answer for it. But cutting locks off of gates and breaking windows of a construction site is where he draws the line. The week of action had a plethora of other events. I personally attended the rally at Ebenezer Baptist Church and the King Center on March 9th. I saw Sandy Springs Police Department had been asked to assist APD in crowd control with about 30 officers in riot gear. The irony being that Sandy Springs PD nor its citizens would ever allow the city of Atlanta to touch their municipality. It's the entire reason they refused to be annexed or remain unincorporated county land and decided to make their own city and call their own shots, even though they didn't have the money or personnel to do so and had to hire a contracting firm to run their city after issuing bonds to fund it. The lengths people will go to be exclusionary. But that's another topic for another episode. The police presence is thick. We are constantly being buzzed by a chopper overhead. We are flanked on all sides by APD, Bolton County Sheriff, and GBI units. We heard from a litany of activists and even from Tort's mother. After all the public comments, the group marched to APF's office on Peachtree Street. I did not accompany them. April 16th, 2023, Atlanta Community Press Collective publishes a piece about how the total funding that APF is expecting from the city is starting to creep up. They published emails from March 2023 via an open records request between APF Vice President of Finance Alicia Grimes and City of Atlanta's Deputy Chief Operating Officer LaShondra Burks, who is also a member of Mayor Audrey Dickens' cabinet, showing that costs of Cop City are rapidly increasing from the originally stated $30 million to a new sum of $33.5 million, citing the need for the foundation to secure a bank loan by June 30th, 2023. They expect the city council to approve the funding bill reflecting the new amount. This is where it gets sinister. Throughout this entire saga of backdoor dealings, Mayor Dickens is on an all-out media offensive. He's giving statements, quotes, and even doing exclusive podcast interviews with the AJC. It's not abundantly clear if the mayor was aware of the exchanges being discussed in the emails because he wasn't directly copied in any of them. 
but it is extremely naive to believe that a mayor is not receiving reports from a member of his cabinet that is orchestrating a project that he himself has doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on to force down our throats. Dickens continually speaks as if the $30 million is a done deal, with the APF funding any budget shortfall they may incur with philanthropic dollars, but there's no legislation that has authorized this or locked it in. As old heads say, get it in writing. Jumping back to September 2021, the original council legislation had authored the lease of 381 acres of city-owned property in the Wilani Forest to APF didn't include any commitment to fund the project. It was just permission. A clause within the proposal mentions that the city and APF predict that annual operating costs will be $1.2 million and that those costs will be offset by the city no longer needing to lease their current facilities. But again, nobody commits to paying that amount. In the official press release from then-Mayor Bottoms administration, the original authorization states that, quote, the full recommended scope of facilities is expected to cost $90 million. The city's contribution will be through a 30-year, $1 million per year lease starting in fiscal year 2024 or a single contribution through a general obligation bond, end quote. April 28, 2023, three forced offenders were arrested in Bartow County, Georgia, and charged with, quote, intimidation of a law enforcement officer or family in retaliation to discharge of duties by force, end quote, a felony as well as misdemeanor stalking for allegedly providing the public with information about the officers who murdered Tort by handing out flyers in one of the officers' neighborhoods. This accusation comes from three distributing flyers naming one of the six officers believed to be involved in Tort's murder, Jonathan Augusto Salcedo, who lives in White, Georgia, population of 700, which is 60 or so miles from Wilani. Keep that in mind next time the state decries outside agitators. The population 15 miles outside of the city in any direction gets real empty and real sundown towny really quickly. Bartow County is no exception, being 85% white at a population of about 113,000 in an area of 460 miles. That's almost four times the size of the city at one fifth of the population. So the fact that these three brave activists went more than two counties away to exercise their First Amendment rights is to be praised. The other five officers are Brian Myers, Jerry Parrish, Mark Lamb, Ronaldo Kegel, and Royce Zah. These names were pulled from a gunshot residue report that the GBI performed after Tort's murder. The felony intimidation charge carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison, depending on which section of the statute the prosecutors plan to apply. The part of the statute that is specific to law enforcement officers carries a minimum sentence of one year and a maximum sentence of five years as well as a $5,000 fine. Unsurprisingly, the warrants filed in this case don't specify which section they are applying. Salcido told prosecutors that he, quote, felt harassed and intimidated by individuals handing out flyers, end quote. The warrants also contain continuous misspellings of Salcido's name by the prosecutors. Despite this, Bartow County Magistrate Judge Duncan E. Livesey still signed off on the documents. Improper information on signed off warrants will be a recurring theme. Another point of pattern recognition, Officer Royce Zah is currently being sued in federal court for shooting Georgia State University student Michaela Diet in the face with a rubber bullet during a George Floyd protest in Atlanta on May 29, 2020. It should be noted 
the manufacturers and distributors of rubber bullet weapons label them as being, quote, non-lethal, end quote, only when the projectiles are not being aimed at people's faces, heads, or necks. So yet another post-trained certified officer deliberately ignoring operational instructions. May 2nd, 2023, the city of Atlanta releases its proposed budget for fiscal year 2024 general fund. It is the largest in the city's history at $790 million with $243 million, 31.3% of every tax dollar that's collected going to the police alone. This is what prompts the call to action and strong response to the upcoming council meeting on Monday, May 15th, as this is when we are expecting the final debates on the Cop City funding proposal to occur before it comes out of the Finance Committee for a full vote. May 15th, 2023. Once again, Atlanta showed up on a Monday, no less, holding the same consistent message to the city council. We do not want it. This entire process has been a shit show. Your details are inconsistent, either intentionally or accidentally, both being inexcusable. Council President Doug Shipman didn't like that people would clap or cheer after passionate speeches, so he paused the meeting and threatened to clear the chamber forcefully by calling in police. The irony was not lost on any of us that this is how they solve any disagreement that they have. Force, either realized or threatened. This is from the former CEO of a museum dedicated to documenting the violation and preservation of civil and human rights the world over during the course of modern history. About 12 officers made their way into the chamber, but they quickly realized that it was about 200 people looking back at them, and nobody made a move. The situation was finally diffused by Councilor Bakhtiari, who spoke directly to the police, telling them that their presence was unnecessary, then reminded Council President Shipman that his duty is to keep the meeting moving. About 300 people ended up speaking, including myself, over the course of eight hours. There wasn't a single speaker in favor of the project. Despite the overwhelming opposition to the project, Councilor Hillis of District 9 introduced ELMS 32709 with support from Councilors Westmoreland of Post 2 at Large, Amos of District 3, Shook of District 7, Norwood of District 8, and Overstreet of District 11 to authorize the transfer of $30 million from fiscal year 2023 budget to build Cop City, along with an additional $1 million to build a gym at the site as well as authorize the mayor to enter into a leaseback agreement with the APF. May 31st, 2023, just after 9 a.m., officers with the APD and GBI raided the residential home of the founding members of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which is a nonprofit that helps financially support those who have been arrested and can't afford to bail themselves out. All three of them were booked into DeKalb County Jail, a horrible facility that has seen nine people under its care die before ever making it to their trials in 2022 alone. The operation was conducted with over a dozen officers, all in Ranger Green camo, tactical vests, assault rifles, and even an armored truck. The raid was authorized by Attorney General Chris Carr, who wasted no time taking credit for this descent into fascism by gloating on Twitter about it, following in his boss's footsteps, because Governor Kemp did the exact same thing. The same Attorney General that appointed the lead prosecutor in the case of Rayshard Brooks, who dismissed the charges against the officers that murdered him. The warrants for the arrest of Marlon Cotts, Savannah Patterson, and Adel McLean stated that they were under suspicion of charity fraud and money laundering. The evidence that the state used was receipts of reimbursements for COVID supplies, 
yard signs, and gasoline. If found guilty of these charges, money laundering comes with a fine of $500,000, up to 20 years in prison, or both. Charity fraud carries a fine of $10,000, a minimum of one year in jail, with up to a five-year maximum, or both. The stronger case of charity fraud will probably be how the APF bought the 381 acres of city-owned land for $10 just to lease it back to the same city for $1.2 million per year for 30 years. There isn't a single parcel of land in this country that would sell for that amount at that lot size. Not to mention that the state wanted to make it clear that because they considered the bail fund a criminal enterprise, anyone that was connected through this organization could also be seen as aiding and abetting under the state's RICO Act. Also, domestic terrorism the state's favorite multisyllabic word. Not to mention the dates on the warrants stated May 2024, but were executed anyways. I guess due process is just a suggestion. Even the judge that all three of them appeared before during their bond hearings stated that he, quote, wasn't impressed, end quote, by the prosecution's case or evidence, going on to say that there, quote, wasn't a lot of meat on the bones, end quote. He closed out the bond hearings by granting $15,000 bond for all defendants and wished them good luck in their cases. So let's recap. You break down somebody's door. You kidnap them, take them to a place that they aren't guaranteed to come out of alive and extort them out of $15,000 each for their freedom. All on the premise of improperly applied information and improperly approved documents. That's armed robbery and kidnapping with extra steps. This shit show has the word settlement written all over it, and our tax dollars are going to be signed on that check yet again. All of the search and arrest warrants were signed off by DeKalb Superior Court Judge Shandina C. Morris, who was appointed to her post by none other than Governor Brian Kemp in 2019. These are not coincidences. These are patterns. At this point, it's hard to ignore what's happening in front of our eyes in real time for anyone that has previously been on the sidelines of this saga. Yet again, the police were on film during this raid in broad daylight. The footage, of course, went viral. This prompted statements from everybody, everywhere, all at once. Georgia state senators and representatives, city councilors, and finally, Senators Warnock and Ossoff broke their silence to address their concerns of these crackdowns. Admittedly, Ossoff could have kept his thoughts to himself as he tried to both sides the situation, but Warnock went as far to say that he would personally be going to the FBI, DOJ, and DHS to get a concrete definition of what a domestic violent extremist and domestic terrorist is, since the state of Georgia is so hellbent on that label. To the surprise of everyone, all the federal alphabet boys responded to Senator Warnock by saying that there is no federally accepted designation of a domestic extremist or terrorist. The FBI went on to say that simply associating in a group that shares politically extremist ideals does not necessarily mean that an individual is a domestic extremist or terrorist. This is the FBI saying this. There's nothing else to say when the FBI is on the record telling a state to chill out. June 4th, 2023. After initial murmurs of the total cost doubling coming out of the Atlanta Community Press Collective, the AJC of all organizations drops an absolute nuke of an article. Quote, taxpayer cost doubles because of leaseback provision in training center deal. End quote. The media outlet lays out what we knew all along. The APF, 
APD, two mayoral administrations, and two city council bodies have been lying to our faces for over two years about the cost of the project. They would tell us one number in public, then negotiate in back rooms for a completely different number. That is the Atlanta way. First, it was the original $30 million. Then it was $31 million. Then it was $33.5 million. Then it was $36 million. Then it was $60 million. Now city council admits that they are going to amend the proposal for $67 million, over double what was initially proposed. This is the day before the full city council meeting is expected to vote on the final package. June 5th, 2023, full city council meeting. This is the beginning of the end. The funding and further agreements have been introduced as personal papers, proposals, and now advanced out of committee to the full council as an official ordinance labeled as 23-0-1257. But before we get to the vote, the same procedure of public comment must be followed. In anticipation of massive turnout, the city closed City Hall for all business not related to the council vote. The official proceedings were scheduled for an 11 a.m. start, but the police didn't allow us into the building until after 10 a.m., knowing City Hall typically opens at 8.15 a.m. So how public comment works is that you have to physically write your name on a sign-up sheet in the building, but it doesn't accept submissions forever. Once the meeting starts, sign-up stops. So reducing the time frame that people could sign up was their ill-fated attempt to reduce the amount of speakers they would have to endure this day. It didn't work. Shattering records previously set by the same people on the same issue, public comment lasted for 15 hours with hundreds of people speaking, again, myself included. The tension was high. The stakes were higher. It took eight hours to get through the first 100 speakers. There was a small recess, but there was no cutoff like in September 2021. They had to break public comment into two different sections to get through everybody. This pushed the meeting through the night and into the next morning. Councilor Boone of District 10 scolded the council on how public comment was handled, stating, quote, we should have been prepared, end quote. A grand total of four people spoke in support of the facility. I guess the council deemed this sufficient because at 5.27 a.m. on Tuesday morning, they voted 11 to 4 to approve the funding package for Cop City. It's important to note the failure and incompetency of this council at every turn. Before the final vote came down, two amendments were added to the ordinance. One was for environmental stipulations, and the other stated that the facility could not be rented out to any other agencies without the approval of the council beforehand. It took them two years to put the basic of oversight guardrails in place. Not only that, it became apparent that not all of the council themselves understood the language, logistics, or obligations laid out before them, and thus tried to motion it back to the Finance Committee for further debate. This motion failed by the same margin of the bill itself. Councilors Jason Winston of District 1, Amir Faroki of District 2, Byron Amos of District 3, Alex Wan of District 6, Howard Shook of District 7, Mary Norwood of District 8, Dustin Hillis of District 9, Andrea Boone of District 10, Marcy Collier-Overstreet of District 11, Michael Julian Bond of Post 1 at Large, and Matt Westmoreland of Post 2 at Large all voted in favor. Councilors Jason Dozier of District 4, Liliana Bakhtiari of District 5, Antonio Lewis of District 12, 
and Keisha Sean Waits of Post 3 at Large all voted no. Commit their names, how they acted, and how they voted to memory. Councilor Bakhtiari broke down in tears once the bill was adopted. And that is the abridged version of how we ended up here. I'm sure there are some pivotal moments and contextual side stories that I couldn't get to, but I tried my best to paint the picture of this ordeal for the uninitiated. I know it was long. I know it was a lot of information, a lot of terms and jargon being thrown around, but you needed to hear it at least once. So when you hear it again, you know exactly what is being discussed, but it doesn't stop here. After training police to be more aggressive, violent, and oppressive, you're going to need somewhere to put all the victims of their newfound tactics. That's where the $2 billion renovation of the Fulton County Jail and the reneging of the deal to close the Atlanta City Detention Center comes into play. Please be assured, conceding anything to fascists doesn't satisfy them. There is no reasoning with the unreasonable. So what do we do now? That is a simple yet difficult question to answer. The cynic in me desperately wants to say, I don't know, looks like we're pretty fucked. But the pragmatist in me wants to go a different route. So as far as I see it, we have three options. Option one, go after the money. Cutting off the money supply is always incredibly effective, but requires an intense amount of coordination over extended period of time to yield any meaningful results. And based on the recent track record of boycotts that I've witnessed, I think our generation has lost the cohesion needed to perform unsuccessfully. However, I'd still like to see every corporation that donated to the APF have a loss equal to or greater than the amount of funding that just passed. So $70 million in lost business, damages, or any combination of the two. The corporate backers include the usual big money suspects, Amazon, Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo. The actual construction of the facility is being handled by Brassfield and Gorey, with insurance of the project being handled by Nationwide. This also includes hometown staples, such as Coca-Cola, Waffle House, Delta Airlines, Home Depot, UPS, Equifax, Inspire Brands, Chick-fil-A, and even the ownership group of the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena, which especially sucks because it feels like a longtime neighbor betraying your trust. But fuck them. You can't enjoy anything if you're in jail or dead. When it comes to dealing with corporations, you can't complain and continue to participate. They'll let you whine and moan all you want as long as you keep giving them your money. Option two, go after the people. When we say no justice, no peace, it means just that. There will be no peace for anybody until justice is delivered. Seeing as how we are on month five of torts murder with no accountability, this is my preferred option. The police murder people on camera. They murder people off camera. This is who they are. There is absolutely no possible way that the current state of policing can be reformed by giving them a 100 million plus dollar blank check to train to be mercenaries in the forest. There should be no peace or sense of security for any public servant that has been complicit in this project. Curse them in public on site, hang out in their neighborhoods, kick in their doors, get creative. There is no war on police, but allow me to illustrate what one would look like. One side is wearing their uniforms and driving branded cars everywhere they go. One side looks anonymous and unassuming. You block off every roadway heading into and out of the city, minimizing any unforeseen responses from forces outside of the target area. You launch a coordinated offensive on every police precinct at the same time, 
repurposing and reclaiming any and all equipment that is recovered during the raids to solidify your supply line. You take a separate unit, use it to block off entrances to hospitals and emergency rooms, ensuring only your forces get triage, letting the opposition bleed out. You take a third unit and use it to block off every fire station under threat of gunpoint, preventing any fire rescue from responding to any alarms. You then set fire to every house and building with a squad car parked outside. As the occupants run out of the flames, you kill or capture them, women and children included. Now multiply that by the worst act of humanity you can imagine, and you'll still be unable to visualize the carnage. That is what a true war against the police would look like, because war is hell. If there was truly a war happening against police, it'd be 21 skunk. They would never see it coming, and there would be no end in sight. It's very easy to oppress, assault, brutalize, and murder people when you have no expectation of being met with equal actions. They do all of this to us under the guise of fearing for their lives. If they truly feared for their lives, they would leave us the hell alone and treat people like they got some sense. I think back to any number of mass shootings that have occurred over this nation's history and how when confronted with one person with a rifle, the police rarely ever engage that person as they slaughter tens of innocent bystanders. That is fear. Putting your boot on people's necks for rightfully questioning your methods is oppression. It is abundantly apparent that this government, local, county, or state is not nearly as afraid of us as they should be. People shouldn't be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people, especially if they repeatedly refuse to do right by the people. Option three. Go after the law itself. Literally, the morning after the vote to fund Cop City came through, a coalition of activist organizations announced that they would be filing a petition for a ballot referendum to cancel the lease on Cop City. If the petition is accepted and approved, there will be a ticking window of 60 days to collect 70,000 signatures of Atlanta residents who are registered to vote in the previous election. This will place the initiative on the ballot in November 2023 to be voted on by the city as a whole. I believe this idea came from a successful referendum that happened in Camden County, Georgia in February of this year. A group of 35,000 residents voted by a margin of three to one to deny the county from using a public-private partnership to build a spaceport on 12,000 acres of land near their homes. The residents cited environmental concerns, noise pollution, and debris landing on them from above. All valid concerns very similar to the concerns surrounding Cop City. However, Camden County is in South Georgia. Like so far south, it might as well be Florida. And if it's anything that people in Atlanta know, it's that Atlanta might be in Georgia, but it is not Georgia at all. Camden County is overwhelmingly white at 78%. Meanwhile, DeKalb County overall is 55% black, and where the site will be built within the county is 77% black. Furthermore, only people in Atlanta, which is plurality black, but not majority anymore, will be able to vote in the referendum. The undemocratic process of building something where the people most affected can't even vote on it is a separately fucked up issue on its own. I also don't like the idea of giving a five month lead time to a project that has already ignored every order to halt construction and has clear cut over 100 acres of forest within the past two weeks especially knowing that APD Chief Shirebaum went on the record to state that he believes that the facility will be completed and ready for move-in by December 2024. 
The tenacity of these orgs is to be admired. However, seeing as how the democratic process has been thrown out the window before our very eyes for the past two years, I think it's bordering on insanity to try yet another government avenue when that same government has shown that it doesn't adhere to its own rules. With all that being said, I'm going to personally sit out on the grassroots campaign for the ballot referendum. I'm still torched out from all the political attention Georgia got from 2020 and then again in 2022, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this reasoning. I hope this reality will be taken into account when the campaign starts. I wish them the best of luck, and of course, I will still vote against Cop City if it makes it to the ballot in November. That's all I have. Again, I want to take time to thank and appreciate all of my comrades involved in this struggle. Atlanta Solidarity Fund, Community Movement Builders, Atlanta Community Press Collective, Unicorn Riot, Alex Joseph, Dan Emmergluck, Fergie Chambers, George Cheedy, Hannah Riley, Kamal Franklin, Madeline Thigpen, Matthew Johnson, Micah Herskin, James Woodle, Kiana Jones, Taylor Shelton, and hundreds if not thousands of others across the movement. A very, very special shout out to Ripper Spirit on TikTok, whose click of my public comment speech on June 5th went viral and was the catalyst for this entire resurgence. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't conflicted with the recent attention I've been receiving over the past two weeks or so. I'm still learning to take it in stride. I hope that everyone that saw the clip or heard me speak was actually listening and not just clapping or cheering at a few zingers. Remember, people over property, people over profits. Always. Individually, there's scarcity, but collectively, there's plenty. Hopefully, this will be a springboard for me to finish and publish all the other episode topics I've been working on before the hiatus, but only time will tell. Admittedly, everything else just feels so small in comparison to this right here, right now. Stay informed however you can. Twitter, Instagram, independent media collectives, word of mouth, websites, and amalgamation of all of the above. A sixth week of action has been planned for June 24th through July 1st of this year. Feel free to participate any way you see fit. Given the track record of how we've been treated every time we go into the forest, I don't think I'll be spending too much time with Mother Wilani this summer. I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. I'm not a chanter. I'm a speaker, a communicator, and an orator. So I hope y'all consider this as an acceptable contribution to the upcoming week of action in lieu of my direct presence. I appreciate every single one of you that is tuned in with me. I've been your host, Cass. I hope I'll see y'all out there one day. We'll catch up. Until then, stay safe, stay vigilant, be militant. Trees give life, cops take it. Save the forest, save yourself.